Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. We are so glad you're here. If you have a Bible, open to Luke 23, and at this time I'm going to invite our scripture readers to come to the front and read. Uh, Stacy, are you reading for us? Okay, come on up. I'll be reading from Luke 23, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one to his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. The rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. So if you don't know, this is the first Sunday of Lent, or as we call it around here, because that word is, is kind of new to some of us, we'll call it the first Sunday in our 40 Days of Growing Deeper campaign. However you describe it, it is a time when Christians all over the world begin to set their hearts and their minds on Easter and the Passion Week and the story of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And more than that, it is a time when Christians try to lean into that story so that it's not just a story of Jesus, but it is our story that we start to live the death and the resurrection. That's the story of our baptism. That's the story of Easter. And that's the story that we know can't wait for one time a year. But it's something that we're trying to grow into, trying to lean into on a regular basis. And so maybe you have, maybe you haven't. It's not too late, but I would invite you, if you haven't already, this can be a good time to adopt just a little spiritual practice. Add a habit into your life over this stretch leading up to Easter. That may be a little time of prayer that you weren't having or some time of silence and reflection or more time of worship or meditation. It may be walking with a friend and a a time of sharing together. It may be a time of of fasting. It could be once a week abstaining from food, or it may be a media fast or a social media fast, whatever it is, I would simply invite you that this can be a good time to adopt a practice or two that puts you in a greater posture of openness. Not just to remember the story, but we're called to be people who show the story and share the story. And live into that rhythm of dying and rising. 
And I don't think I have to tell you that our world desperately needs the Easter story this year. Our world needs to know and see and hear and witness as people live out the reality that we proclaim that there is something else than what we're being bombarded with every day. There is something else besides and beyond all the disease and all the destruction and all the death. We need the Easter story, not just once a week, but we need to live into that Easter story and grab onto that Easter story that Jesus, through His death, makes a way, but He also shows a different way of living and being human and interacting with others. And we also need to live that story and grow into that story that Jesus comes out on the other side of death. That that's not the end of the story. But life is the end of the story. And hope is the end of the story. And renewal is the end of the story. And transformation is the end of the story. And a world remade is the end of the story. So we're going to spend some time looking at elements of the crucifixion story and in particular you will notice if you've read through the gospels that every gospel shares some aspect of the death and the resurrection of Jesus but they all do it from their own angle they do it from a different perspective they they share slightly different aspects of that and in the middle of those moments on the cross Jesus utters seven small sayings that are a big window into his heart and the heart of God and the mission of God. And not just what he came to do, but what he came to bring into our lives and who we can be. And you already heard one of those sayings when Stacy read from Luke 23. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. And those words blow me away every time I hear them and I think about what he's saying and when he's saying it and where he's saying it and about whom he's saying it. But then it also raises some questions for me and maybe for you as well. Forgive them. Who's they? Who doesn't know what they're doing in this story? Who's he praying for? We might think, well, his followers, the disciples. But at this point in the story, there's not many disciples still hanging around. Some of the women who are disciples and John. And that's it because the rest have scattered. In fact, they scattered quite a while back at his arrest. Maybe it was fear. Maybe it was disillusionment. 
Maybe it was a loss of hope and perspective. This is not at all what we saw coming. He kept saying it was coming, but we didn't understand what was coming. The people who were closest to him, most of them scatter. They flee. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. There seems to be a decent-sized crowd that's hanging around the cross. Perhaps it's a prayer for them. The crowd plays an interesting role in the story, the narrative of the Passion Week. Because a week before, or about five, four days before, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem, and we often call it the triumphal entry, what's the crowd doing? They are cheering. They're screaming. They are crying out, Hosanna. Four or five days later, they are crying for the release of Barabbas while they cry for the crucifixion of Jesus. It can be easy to get sort of swept up in the crowd. In fact, you may have noticed we've got several names for that sort of thing. Groupthink is one. You heard that? When I think groupthink, I think some gatherings of fraternities at college where the more that get together, the lower the intelligence goes of really intelligent people individually, but you get together and groupthink kicks in. And you're not thinking very clearly, and it's like, well, if we've got a whole group that's doing the same thing, it must not be all that bad. Or we've got another name for it, mob mentality. I think of mob mentality every time I see a team win a Super Bowl or national championship, some big game where a group of people can go from, you know, euphoric celebration to torching cars and, and tearing down light posts, and you're like, what, what happened there? How is that? And you just, you just get caught up in the crowd crowd is so interesting in the story because just a little earlier they are mad screaming for Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be crucified and yet Luke tells us by the end they go away sad they're they're beating their breasts which is a figure of speech to say they're, they're now filled with remorse and and shame as if they're looking and watching, they don't understand the gravity. They just know things took a bad turn somewhere in this. This can't be right. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Or maybe it's the soldiers. You know, I have noticed as I've spent more time in the Gospels, and maybe you've noticed this too, that the Gospel writers actually don't give us all that many of the gory details of crucifixion. 
Most of us, if we've grown up in church, we've learned some of the gory details, but we learn that through historical records. We don't learn that through the Gospels. But what we do know from historical records is it was horrific, and it was designed to be that way. And it was designed to torture the individual and, and prolong the torture for the individual. But it was also designed to terrorize the rest of the people. It is a way to say, and we see this on the news constantly these days, it is a way to say, don't you dare cross the state, or this is what happens. And so it is possible to say that these soldiers are low-level soldiers, and they are unfortunately just following orders. Now, that hasn't excused the Nazis over the years after it was all said and done, but it's a tough position, and yet when you read the story, they, they seem to revel in taking it a little further than just the orders, right? They're getting in on the game, not just inflicting the pain, but hurling out insults all throughout the story. Blows with their fists and blows with the whips and blows with their words. And they're playing games over his clothes because that's the only thing of value that he has left, but they're, they're also playing games with his claims. Are you telling me they don't know what they're doing? Or is that really the point? When Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Then you got a whole group of leaders in this story. Pilate and Herod, who are head of the heap in this part of the world at that time. And they had the power to stop things. They had the power to nip this in the bud, and their efforts were half-hearted at best. They would rather stay popular with the crowd than speak up against this person that they find comical and confusing. And then there are the religious leaders who are driving this bus, moving things toward the cross, but also then joining in the mocking and the sneering and even if they were doing what they thought was best, and you could argue they were doing what they thought was best, what they thought was best was cruel and brutal. Did they really not know what they were doing? And yet Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. I don't know about you, but it is usually easier to forgive when someone has hurt us or wronged us or injured us or betrayed us, but we can convince ourselves it's unintentional. 
They did that, but they didn't mean to do that. They did that, but they didn't really know what they were doing. I had that happen not that long ago when someone said some really hurtful things about intellectual disabilities, and they said it not really thinking about how it connected with my family, and I knew they weren't making the connection, and so silently I'm praying my version of this prayer, Father, forgive us. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're saying, but sometimes they do. Sometimes we know, they know good and well what they're doing, and sometimes we do. Sometimes we know good and well what we're doing, and yet we do it. And still when betrayal and abandonment were at their worst and when arrogance and hate was at its worst and callousness and cruelty was at its worst, Jesus was at His best offering forgiveness and mercy and love. And I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly comforting for for all the ways I inflict harm or I devalue the image of God in another or I cause pain and I did it on accident but I did it and I find comfort for all the times when I cross a line and I hurt someone I love. And I knew what I was doing when I did it. And I said that thing anyway. But this is where things get more complicated, at least for me. Because at some point as Jesus followers, what we receive, we're asked to give. We're asked to share, we're asked to show, including forgiveness. Like when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.13, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. And we're like, that's kind of a tough ask. And then he's like, oh, I'm not done. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And I'm thinking, really? Like, as the Lord forgave me on the cross? kind of forgiveness? Did Paul really have to add that last part? Because I would much rather celebrate being forgiven at my worst than show forgiveness when others are at their worst to me. And in fact, as we are all well aware, when you take that into the real world, and it moves from being hypothetical, it becomes really, really hard. And we're living smack in the middle of one of those times when I don't know how forgiveness is even possible. I had on my calendar for several months that I was going to preach on this passage uh, today. 
But I also happen to be watching and reading many of the same things that you are as we watch the atrocities that are taking place in Ukraine. An unprovoked war, the death and the the destruction, and it's got the whole world on edge. And it was, I think, on Tuesday, in the middle of reading and preparing for this sermon that had been on the calendar for months, that I saw this quote from the Ukraine president, nobody will forgive. And my reaction was, nobody expects you to. And nobody blames you. And how could you? Possibly. Especially now. While the aggression and the atrocities is still going on. We don't even have the benefit of hindsight. They're in the middle of it. And By proxy, the rest of the world is getting sucked into it. And could anyone claim they don't know what they're doing? I mean, we could about most of the Russian people. They didn't choose it. They didn't know it was going to happen. They live in a society where they don't even have access to good information, not legally at least. The press is not free and open. It's, it's filtered through the government. The internet is not free and open. It's filtered through the government. They are not suffering like the Ukrainian people, but they're suffering. Their economy is tanking, and they're looking to see how they can survive. Maybe you could claim they don't know what they're doing, and maybe you heard some of the reports, maybe even you even saw a few of the heartbreaking videos of Russian soldiers, low-level soldiers early in the invasion, who would get captured, and Ukrainians would hold a camera to them as they called. They'd let them call or FaceTime their family, and they would say, we were told we were just on a, on a routine training exercise. We didn't know we were coming here. We didn't know what we were doing. You could conceivably say, at least at one point, they didn't know what they were doing. But the longer it goes on, the more they're like, hey, these are Ukrainian signs we're seeing. And the higher up you go, the more you realize that they knew exactly what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. They've known a long time what they were going to do. And here I'm just going to be honest. That means I don't know. There's a lot I don't know. I don't always know when to forgive. Jesus forgave at the most inopportune time, at least from his perspective. But I would like to say that I don't know. I don't know that it makes sense in the middle of the attack and the abuse to even talk about forgiveness or try to decide how you forgive or under what conditions, which is usually what I'm thinking of or want to talk about if I'm being honest. Forgiveness, yes, 
maybe here are the conditions down the road at this time after reparations have been made and the list goes on and on and truth be told sometimes we just don't want to forgive too much damage has been done or we don't know how it is easier to listen to stories of Jesus's forgiveness than to forgive as the Lord forgave me father forgive me I don't know how to do it. So a friend of mine was working at a Christian high school shortly or while the 9-11 attacks occurred. And any of you who are old enough to remember when the 9-11 attacks occurred, you know the, the shock, the fear, the pain that gripped you, you know where you were when you heard the news, you know what you were feeling when you saw it, and we're all, it's unfolding in real time, and you know that the, the anger that gripped the nation and the world, and my friend happened to be a teacher of Bible at that Christian school, and they just happened that semester to be working their way through the gospel of Luke. And it was just a couple of days after the 9-11 attacks where they came to a part of Luke's gospel where Jesus starts to talk about, of all things, loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. And my friend said he had this internal crisis. What do I do? Do I even talk about this passage? Do I even cover this section? Because he knew the nation was raw, his students were raw, he's raw. Does he just sort of skip over? Even though they've been going verse by verse, but when he gets there, it's just like, you know, nothing to see here. Pay no attention to the, the passage behind the curtain. Or does he have a, an honest conversation and invite them to have an honest conversation? Hey, this is really hard. This is really tough. What, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Not just in the hypothetical, but in the here and the now, in this moment, what do we do with this? And so he decided, you know, honest dialogue, even if it was painful and difficult and they'd have more questions than answers, that was healthier in the long run and so they had the conversation and the students were honest and they were authentic and they were real and they shared the real struggle of a passage like this at any time but especially during a time like this and no one had any easy answers they just sat with the text and they, they wrestled with the implications and they talked about do you do that now under what circumstances what does that look like can we really do that and he said they were very mature in the conversation and the class ended and an older teacher in the school, he found out, had ended up just outside their room. And he listened in throughout the entirety of that discussion. And as soon as the students left the room, that teacher came in the room, and he came at him hot, and he was wagging his finger in my friend's face, and he said, it's not right, it's not right. And my, my friend said, what's not right? 
And he said, you are teaching them to take love to an unnatural extreme. And I can't argue with that. There is nothing natural about the forgiveness that Jesus offers at the time that he offers it to the people for whom he prays. And there is nothing natural about forgiveness. Even after unprovoked war and atrocities are in the past, much less while they are cruelly and mercilessly going on. And there is nothing natural about forgiveness when it feels like a spouse is actively sabotaging the relationship. And there is nothing natural about forgiveness while it feels like a friend is consciously betraying your trust. And I don't always have the wisdom to know exactly when or how or under what circumstances to forgive and under what circumstances to withhold forgiveness until certain changes occur. I wish I had answers for you, and sometimes I don't. And I don't on this. If truth be told, more often than not, it's not just wisdom I lack. It's the will and the want to. But amidst all of my questions, I am convinced of this. This is what I feel confident about. The world of God's new creation will only be fully experienced when the most unnatural, absurd, hardest kinds of forgiveness and deepest levels of love take reign in our hearts and in our midst and in our world. That they take us to unnatural extremes, the kind displayed on the cross. Father, forgive us. We don't know what we're doing. And Father, help us because we can only get where we need to go through you. Amen. Let's stand and sing.